0: lesson for this evening. I wanted to find out if there are any questions you might have about what we talked about last week, about interpretation. It was uh, quite a a whirlwind tour, I think, through quite a few different topics. And I am going to come back and spend a little more time on some of it uh, here myself. So um, any thoughts or questions you might have about what we looked at last time? Yeah, Psalm 22, yeah. I, I, I couldn't say that he absolutely knew what he was talking about in the future. I think that's part of what Peter was talking about when he said they, they wrote it, they spoke it, and then they tried to determine what person this was. You know They couldn't see what the messianic fulfillment was necessarily. We're going to talk about that a little bit. That's another thing I'm going to talk about. I thought that might be another question. So I think sometimes I mean, at least I'll speak for myself. I just have to say I don't know what he thought, for sure. I, I don't think he had full understanding of who this was going to be. Um, up until the point, well, even after the crucifixion, the disciples were stunned by what happened. They expected a Messiah to come and free them from Gentile occupation. And they were right about that. They just they just were wrong about the timing. And so... Um, there are there are things that they saw that they were right about, and there were things that they they could not see until it until it actually happened and it was revealed to them. So that's probably my best answer. I think sometimes we can get into some speculation on it, and I'm not sure what all they actually understood and didn't. I know they I know they guessed and they questioned as to what who this person was because they couldn't see with cl- the kind of clarity they had until after he came, and. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And we're also going to, and I think I mentioned it last time, There's that, that old saying that the, the Old Testament saints looked, looked uh, forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. That's a real overstatement. Um, they didn't even understand the, that Messiah would die a sacrificial death until Isaiah 53, about 700 years before it happened. So everybody prior to that, they, had, they did not have that revelation. It wasn't revealed then. And even the virgin the virgin birth isaiah seven fourteen right now there's 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 hints of it early on, and we're going to be talking about that, but what it actually was until that point in time it wasn't revealed so the the revelation was progressive, and like we said, and we going to keep stressing it even though it even though it was progressive and it got gave clarity and uh, particularity and uh, more information, it never changed what that original uh, revelation was. That's a real important principle. Okay. Yeah, Steve. Well, I think we can go back to our foundational um, issues. All Scripture is God breathed and profitable. So that's that's foundational. So the inspiration is there. I mean, if it's if it's God breathed, it's inspired in in the sense of it's God breathed. So inspiration. It's a little bit of a misnomer. It got kind of tagged onto it. May be better expired. So, breathed out. It's God breathed, and so it has all of those characteristics that we saw and we looked at of of what it means to be the Word of God. Like Psalm 19, the Word of God is this, and then it has an effect, or it has a a purpose and an effect. So, um, it I think maybe. Maybe the issue might be between progressive revelation and progressive um, illumination. Is that maybe what you're thinking? What does the person see? What's the illumination? Exactly. But now the content of that word is probably what we're talking about. Like Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. Look at that passage. That's what he believed. What you can't do, and it's what some people have done, is read New Testament atoning theology back into that. He had, he did not have a concept of, of the cross at that point in time. You can't do that. That, that's really the, where we want to tap the brakes with that type of thing and, and uh, say that, that's not a legitimate way to approach scripture. It was progressively revealed later on. Yeah, I mean, crucifixion wasn't even invented at that point in time. And that that whole concept wasn't there. So what we have to do, I think, is look at the text in the context of where we're reading it and say, "What what can we tell from that right there at that point in time? So all of those parameters that we looked at, the historical, literary, political, cultural, religious, geographic, social, and all those, also timing. What information did they have? And if we just go by what's there, I think we're pretty safe. Um, uh, but but to not but to avoid trying to read back into it, we again we look back and we say, well, sure we know what that is because we have the advantage of the fullness of the revelation of God, and the closed canon of Scripture that explains it to us. They didn't have that. That's that's really all kind of what we're trying to say as far as the progress of revelation. But also, really key, it never. Progressive revelation, additional information does not change what was said. It doesn't change that meaning. My illustration of the, uh, the elk hunter may have rung a bell with some of you guys. It walks out in the clearing, and you have you have greater illumination because the revelation was more when it walked out. But just because you see exactly what it is now... It didn't change one bit what walked out into that clearing. When you first noticed something, an animal, was it a hunter? Was it a deer? An elk? What is it? You got you got progressive illumination when you looked through your binoculars at it, and it's a good thing you didn't shoot it because it might not have been what you thought it was. That's my North Idaho illustration. So, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go through this a little bit more here because I know those I know there were some questions last time, so that's why I spent some time trying to put together a little bit of a review for it. So, Okay, anything else? Okay, why don't we do this? Let's let's run through the questions real quick from last week, because there's not very many of them, and then we'll spend some time going back over um, this issue of progressive revelation. So, page 18. Before a reader of Scripture is prepared to interpret a text, he must first... Observe yeah got to see it right you have to see it for what it is okay uh, like that stop sign that proverbial stop sign number two the meaning of a word is determined by how it is used yeah usage determines meaning now this one is kind of simple and it might just you know it might be so simple that you don't really think about it too much but it really is um, even even in our language we have all kinds of words we use that we know what they mean, and there are certain things called idioms, you know, one's own. You could say th- something to somebody using an idiom. You know exactly what it means. We all know what it means. Somebody from another culture, another language, it, it, they wouldn't have the foggiest idea. Some of them, I don't even know what they mean. Hey, that's really the bee's knees. Where'd that, what is that? Where'd that come from? Who invented that? I don't know, but we all kind of know when we hear these things, you know. Um, how'd that business deal go, Bob? Well, I got taken to the cleaners. Wait a minute, isn't going to the cleaners a good thing? You know? Um, No, it was a dirty deal. Well, how could... Okay, see, so we have these things. How we use them determines what they mean, right? Anyway, you can probably think of a lot more. So number four... uh, Number three. Determining authorial intent is important because... Probably some co- complex of answers here, but what's one of the main ones? Why do we want to know the meaning of Scripture? Guards against eisegesis. Guards against eisegesis. That's one very good reason. And okay. Yeah. Not all text have meaning to the person who wrote it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Just stand back, big picture. Why do I want to know the meaning of this book? Bingo. Yeah, it's, this is God's Word. It's really important for us to to want to know what it, what it says, what it means by what it says, and how do I apply it to my life? Um, it determines somebody's eternal destiny if they just disregard it, which most people do, right? They look at us and they think, what are you spending so much time with this ancient old book for? Why don't you read something contemporary? Something more progressive, you know? Um, so... Those are all really good reasons. Yep. Um, MacArthur years ago said that the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. Exactly. So if you don't get the meaning, you don't have the Scripture. Exactly. One more reason why when we went through allegory and, or allegorical interpretation or uh, spiritualizing, when you do that, you, you, you break loose the, the word from the text. And that, that means you've, you've destroyed the authority of the text. Okay. Now, now it's, it can mean anything, whoever's hands it's in. And you have to keep the text there for the, to get the full meaning from it. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Okay. So, number four, the progressive nature of scripture may illumine, add to, clarify, or expand a prior text but it never changes or contradicts the original meaning of the prior text. True, false, or I don't know. True. Absolutely true. Yeah. And you see if, and okay, we go back to our, our original um, uh, model. Okay. How did the prophets interpret the Old Testament? How did the apostles interpret it? How did Jesus interpret it? And if he considered it the Word of God. Okay? Now, if it was the Word of God you know, to Abraham and then the meaning somehow changes, what does that say about the God of the Word who gave the Word to Abraham? Right? You see, you've got to keep that connection. It doesn't change the meaning. Or in, in so much of this, the integrity of God is at stake. Is it not? And, and His Word to be fulfilled as He gave it. So it's really critical. Nothing changes, even though there's, there's clarity given, um, and so on. So number six, Paul told the Corinthian Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. A practical method of determining how to apply that in today's culture would be to think in terms of form and function. The function Paul wants is for Christians to... Well, in the text, what's the actual words? Greet one another. That's an aorist imperative, the strongest command force verb in the Greek, Greek text. Okay, Strong command. He modifies it with a prepositional phrase. The form it could take in his day and culture was? A holy kiss, yeah. So greet one another with, we were, we were discussing prepositions the other day. So you want to maybe ask the question, what does he want? What's he looking for? He's looking for Christians to greet one another, okay, and love one another, part of the fellowship. It could take the form at that, in that day of a holy kiss, kiss on the cheek, okay? I have a little war story. Uh, decades and decades ago, um, after we had moved from Southern California up to the San, East San Francisco Bay Area, we were looking for a church, my wife and I. So we found a church we thought was going to work for us, and, you know, it seemed to be pretty good <clears throat> getting to know the people. Um, one morning we got there and we walked in the front. And approaching the front door to be the greeters was uh, one of the deacons, if the church had deacons. And we were in our early twenties. They were probably this couple was probably in their mm. mid fifties. They were an older couple. We said hello and walked on in. And we were just coming through the the foyer, and another younger couple was walking across over to where they were. Okay, and there wasn't very many people there yet. And so right when we walked in the door. To come and sit down we heard very loud and very pointed will you stop that and i remember looking at penny and her eyes were like that <laughs> so we went and sat down and um she had gotten to know this older woman uh, pretty kind of and and she said you know i just i'm gonna have to go find out what went on there I, i'm not going to speculate on it. okay so when she had an opportunity she went and talked to her this younger guy had been had gotten into the habit of literally applying that verse to the women in the church on Sunday mornings and had been asked very nicely, very kindly, two or three or four times, please don't do that, I'm not comfortable with that, all of that. And apparently this particular morning, he uh, was going to continue to disregard that and attempt to kiss this deacon's wife, and that was her response. I mean, it was loud and it was angry. So I don't know if that solved the problem, but... Uh, That's what happened there. It was a misapplication of a biblical principle, okay? And uh, kind of embarrassing, hopefully, for him and not for everybody else. But, uh, okay, form and function. Okay, extra credit, worth up to 137 extra credit points. Pretty generous, I thought. Read the text or listen to the message delivered by Dr. Abner Chow to the 2016 Pre-Trib Research Center. And the message is a hermeneutical evaluation of the Christocentric hermeneutic. Okay? So, anybody want to give a shot at, the, uh, at a definition of the Christocentric? And what I did, I caught it later on, I said the CH. Well, that could have been either one, but since the title is Christocentric hermeneutic and not the uh, Christotelic hermeneutic, But anyway, hopefully you guys got that. Anybody want to give maybe a working definition of that, or maybe even the difference between Christocentric hermeneutic and a Christotelic hermeneutic? There is an article in the back um, that I gave you talking about the differences between them. In every text, yeah, looking back at the, let's say, the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about Luke 24 here in a minute, and saying, I must find him in there because he is in there, okay, according to their understanding of Luke chapter 24. Whereas Dr. Chow's method is more, no, that destroys progressive revelation. You have to get back and start as the scripture starts and it it's christotelic so telos is endpoint or or purpose as it all moves toward the purpose oh yes the whole bible moves toward christ and the culmination of him and his life and everything but that's that's a real difference it's almost a difference between looking back and reading into and looking forward and letting it progressively develop out through progressive revelation okay Oh, nobody wanted 137 extra points. Okay. Anything else you might... Uh, questions you have on that? Okay, so before we start in on application, let's, uh, let's just spend a minute or two here, or three or four or five, talking about progressive revelation. So let's look at Luke chapter 24 for just a minute. Because this is where much of this starts in this particular passage and i think maybe we'll we can see maybe what's going on here with these in luke chapter 24 um it is resurrection sunday the lord is has been is raised from the dead and the story is those followers went to the tomb and so forth and in verse 12 of chapter 24, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Okay, And then, verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. Now, this may help with your answer or your question about uh, what did people actually see and know? Who is the sovereign God who reveals Himself to man? Right? God is the self-revealing God. You cannot reason your way toward God. Nobody can. Uh, Brilliant, brilliant atheists. And some atheists are just brilliant people. And they've uh, tried to reason their way to God and through all kinds of... uh, Uh, philosophical arguments and everything else and the ontological, teleological, cosmological arguments, right? And they wind up saying, hey, I've thought my way to God and there is no God, see? Because I'm so smart I could reason my way to God. God is a self-revealing God and He reveals Himself uh, according to His sovereign purposes. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Him, at least at that point in time. And He said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looked sad then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He was the only one who really did know, right? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, now mark this next phrase. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered Him up to be condemned to death and crucified Him. Okay, now here, here, here's their presupposition. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. There was a very high level of Messianic expectation at that time in Israel. And these, these guys were expecting Messiah to come and redeem Israel. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, the angels are going to play a part here in a minute. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. Okay, now here's our Lord's response And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones! Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's very important. They're believing some of the things the prophets have spoken because the prophets talked about Messiah, when he comes, will be the conquering king, and he will judge the Gentiles, judge the nations, okay? Um, But what, what they were failing to believe was the issue of he was going to die on a cross and pay for their sins, okay? They couldn't see that. They were conf- they had they had conflated and confused the first coming with the second coming, all right. All that the prophets have spoken. Anybody want to take a shot at their hermeneutical um, interpretive model? What's what's not there? What are they not being in their understanding of Scripture? What is it? Comprehensive. Yeah. And if you're not comprehensive, you're not going to have all the data. And if you don't have the, all the data, you can't get the data to fit. So that was their main problem. They didn't believe all that the prophets have spoken. And verse 27, oh, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? That's what they weren't seeing. You guys have missed the atoning death of Messiah for your sins. And beginning, now I'm going to change, I'm not sure what you have here. There's probably multiple um, translations. The, the Greek word here, "apa," preposition from, and I think it's I think it's important. And beginning from Moses and from the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, do you see the distinction between um, from Moses and from all the prophets? Those who want to read this back into the text say, "With in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. It's really easy to see that in all the Scriptures, you're going to find Jesus in every little part of it. Okay, And this is what happens. They start here in the New Testament, and they read that back into the Old Testament and decide that we have to find Jesus in everything. And I've read books by by guys that have done that, and uh, way back early on in my walk with the Lord, I was trying to find things to read, and I, I got a hold of some stuff that <laughs> was not very good. They were seeing things in all these little details that, I mean, I, I couldn't see it, you know, little tiny um, details that were maybe just part of a normal narrative, but they're seeing Jesus in there, some part of Jesus in there, so um, that's where they got this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. Okay? So their eyes were kept from recognizing back in 16, and now their eyes were opened. Sovereignty of God, right? And they recognized Him, and He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while He talked to us on the, on the road, while He opened it to us the Scriptures? How did Jesus reveal Himself to them? Through what? Through the Scriptures, right? That's so critical to see what's going to happen from here on out. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself Touch me and see, for a spirit, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a pit, piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. He ate the fish, and it didn't drop out on the floor like he was Casper the Friendly Ghost. He had a real... Material body. I'm always kind of fascinated by how often he says, give me something to eat. Give me something to eat. That's proof he wasn't just some mystical spirit, right? And uh, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When he, when these Cleopas is a Gentile name. Okay, Luke is a Gentile. Luke is writing. If you go back and look at Luke's introductory statement, he's writing to a friend of his named Theophilus. Theophilus is a Gentile name. That's a Greek name. Theophilus was probably what is called a god He would have been a Gentile convert to Judaism, and even in uh, Acts. So remember, Luke and Acts are a two-part uh, work. Um, and if if you put a paper clip on on John's gospel, and then you read from chapter 24 of Luke to Acts chapter 1, you can just see the flow right through. He's writing to the exact same person, even references his first work that I wrote to you in uh, Acts chapter 1. Luke, Acts, purpose of Luke, Acts, major purpose is the movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other New Testament writer that's really significant. He wrote more than even the Jewish uh apostle to the Gentiles Paul. And so it's this is this is really key to understanding this. Now when the 11 come on the scene, they are what? These are Jewish converts, right? And so it's really significant when he says Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are the three categories of the Old Testament that the that, that Jews would have uh, recognized. OK, the law, the, the prophets and the writings and it's sometimes called Psalms because Psalms is the first part of the work of the writings. But that's that's a reference to how they would understand the word of God. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. That's right out of the Abrahamic covenant. One of the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant is through you, Abraham, God said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all the families of the world. That is repeated several times throughout Genesis it is a transgenerational covenant and it's even it's even quoted that phrase is quoted by peter in acts chapter 3 and also by uh, paul in galatians 3:8 okay that's really critical to understand all the nations this is the movement of the gospel from jew to gentile this is what he wants this is one of the things these guys didn't get right hey we're in jerusalem and we got the king here we got the messiah we're we're set you know and he says no you're going to go out of Jerusalem into the world, and I'm going to empower you to do that on the day of Pentecost, which is exactly what happened. They weren't seeing this part of the program, even though it was there. So now when he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Go back. <clears throat> let's, see. let's see how far back I want to go here. Okay, let's just go back to the to chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now remember the angels? I said they're going to play a part in this. And Jesus said... Um, no, I just read it. can't find it again. Boy, do I need some new, new glasses. Okay. Then He said, 44... These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, so we go back to the beginning of this this passage. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These are angels. Angels don't have wings. Sorry. Angels always appear as young men. Okay, Um, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So right there you have the connection of Jesus saying, "Remember what I told you," and even the angels have to remind these guys of what He had told them. That's what I—that was the connection I was trying to make there. So, so here they are um, thinking one thing about Messiah, and not wrong. Messiah is going to set up an earthly kingdom, but it's just not yet. Okay, and we even see that later on with the uh, the other disciples. But the point is here: what they're going to do, they're going to move out into the the world with the Gospel, but they don't have any New Testament uh, books right now, right? They're not going to use the Gospels because they don't have them. They're going to be reliant on the Old Testament. Okay, so that's Luke 24. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. We jump over at the Gospel of John. So John was written late in the first century. And when it was recognized as a gospel account, then when the the, uh, canon was compiled, it was inserted after Luke because it was a gospel account. So that made it, a it separated this two-part Luke-Acts work. So we'll just jump over that to Acts chapter 1. And here again, it it says, um, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So they had a 40-day clinic on the kingdom of God by the risen Christ. I'd go to that conference. it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They were not wrong about that going to happen. He doesn't say, "Hey, that's not going to happen." In fact, he just in fact he endorses that understanding because the Father has fixed the time. And the time that the Father has fixed is the time for the kingdom to start on the earth, the earthly form of the kingdom. But it's not now. So their presupposition was, we got the king, we've got the risen king and is that at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. There's a high level of Messianic expectation for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. But he wants to send them out with the Word of God to disciple people. So look at Acts chapter 8. They move out after the day of Pentecost, empowered by the Spirit to do that very thing. And they're going to use the Old Testament to do it. This is the story of Philip. And the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, is also a Greek name. It's a Gentile name. And he's uh, one of the, um, uh, the deacons. Okay? And he has this encounter. God sends him out. The Spirit of God sends him out. And um, in uh, Acts chapter 8, um, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. This is a Gentile, okay? This is Gentile outreach. And uh, the Spirit said to Philip, in verse 29, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, now here's a good illustration of somebody reading the Old Testament and not understanding it. He says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So he tells him who this is actually about. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Mode of baptism was immersion, by the way. Clarity to them. Jews could have, Jews knew how to baptize. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. He used the Old Testament prophets, Jesus spoke from the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's exactly what Philip did there. Do you see any pattern here with this Ethiopian eunuch as far as what we've been talking about? Observation. He read it, right? But it took somebody else to help him. Interpretation. And how did it all wind up? What was the application? He believed, right? And he was he obeyed and was baptized. So there's an example of of the Old Testament prophets being used. Okay, and how about Acts 17, one through three? Okay, they were, had been in Philippi, and uh, now they're released from from prison. Paul and Silas in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. It was always Paul's habit to go to the Jews first. He understood that from um, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We love that verse because it says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But you've got to include the rest of the verse, right? To all who believe, to the Jew first, also to the Greek Paul took that very seriously and he did that throughout the whole book of Acts. He would always go to the Jews first. Some people argue and say, no, see, the Jews rejected their Messiah, and so it's it's no longer goes to the Jew first. Okay? Little problem there. There's a single verb that controls both those clauses. It's a stative verb me is present tense, present active. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. So if you want to say that it used to be to the Jew first, but it's not anymore. Guess what? It's also not the power of God into salvation anymore. Okay, you want to go there? Hopefully not. It's always to the Jew first. God commands the gospel to go to the Jews first. Any evangelistic endeavor that doesn't go to the Jew first is in disobedience to Romans one sixteen. Just is, and it can go to the Jews actively, or it can go to them passively if you support Jewish ministries. Okay. So anyway, this is what he does. He goes to the synagogue first. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Expl- and it would have had to have been the Old Testament, right? There was he, They did not have any New Testament at that point in time. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ okay and then you have the response that comes after that well let's see look at acts 18 27 and 28 this is a man named apollos a jew in verse 24 and uh, he came to ephesus and apparently he was a fairly significant guy eloquent it says competent in the scriptures now he is uh, taken aside by priscilla and aquila they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. He had some information, okay? He was partial in his understanding, but they explained it. They gave him some uh, uh, progressive illumination there, okay? And in verse 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Again, took the Old Testament and used it to uh, show them who Jesus truly was. One more, Acts chapter 28, the very end of the um, book of Acts. At this stage, Paul is in prison. He's in prison because he was a Roman citizen and when he got arrested in Jerusalem and was trying, they were trying to charge him with some seditious act and get him executed. He was a Roman citizen, so he had the right to appeal his case to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome anyway. So he appeals to Rome, appeals to Caesar, and they say, well, then to Caesar you go. And Paul got an all-expense-paid trip to Rome and uh, winds up there. And he's, of course, in, in prison. And um, it says in verse 23, since he's in prison and he has... Uh, His habit is to go to the Jews first. He's going to still do that all the way at this point in time. He invites them to come to him. He can have company back and forth. Apparently it's more like a house arrest type situation. People can come and go. And so he invites these Jewish leaders to come. In verse 23, "...when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And uh, when he met with rejection, he also used the prophet Isaiah to tell them what the uh, result was going to be, and that's the quote from 26 and 27. It's going to be their judgment, and the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. But now, very interesting, who's he talking to? He's talking to local leaders of the Jews. These are the Jewish hierarchy the Jewish teachers but how did he use the scriptures from the both from the law of Moses and the prophets? very interesting what happened to what happened to the writings? well um, the the Jewish rabbis had a sort of a had a sliding scale of how they considered the Old Testament to be inspired they really thought the Pentateuch was inspired. Full inspiration of the law, right? They had a little lower view of the prophets; they're not quite as inspired, and an even lower view of the writings. So, probably one good reason why he didn't reason with them from the writings or the Psalms—they just didn't consider it all that all that inspired. Okay, so there we go from the uh, the pattern of the the disciples, what they did there. Now, Jesus used the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets and the writings, sometimes it's called Psalms, to validate his messianic credentials, and so did the apostles. And uh, even today, this is a, a front cover of a of a Hebrew Bible. It's a very commonly used Bible. It's uh, published. It's called BHS, Biblical Hebraicus Ducratensia. And there's the actual title up at the top. Hebrew reads from right to left, so that's Torah. That's law. And then Navi'im. Navi is um, a prophet. Um, the masculine plural ending, the im, Navi'im, is prophets. And then va-katavim, to katav is to write. So katavim, it means writing. So law, prophets, and writings is still the title of the Hebrew Bible today. So that's what they did. And the law, prophets, and writings. So now, let's take a look and this is just going to be an illustration of how Messianic pro- prophecies progressively revealed Messiah. That's, I didn't do a good job with that. It's not so much that the prophecies are progressively revealed, it's Messiah who is progressively revealed. Okay, so sorry about that. That's, that's pretty poor wording. Let's look at Genesis 3.15. Steve and I were talking about this today. Genesis 3.15 right after the fall. So what we're going to see, this messianic promise starts out fairly general. Okay, So the Lord said to the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed. This is the ESV. So, does anybody have any of you trying to say seed? Actually, say seed. With numeric Standard. Yeah, that's that's the word seed. And her her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So now, what can we learn from this? Well, there's quite a bit. There's quite a bit here. We have that there's going to be enmity or conflict between you and and the woman and your descendants. Okay, your seed. Now, what's also interesting here is is the mention of the woman. All right, Um, the woman, the seed of the woman. Women don't have seed. Do you want to know an explanation of that Dave will tell you after we're done okay if you can't figure that one out it, it it but but that is so significant because this is a foreshadowing, and again you can't you can't read into this what's not here but we're gonna we're gonna see later on as we look at matthew that uh, this is a like a foreshadowing of the virgin conception of messiah okay um, and it also goes against. The rest of the Old Testament, as far as genealogical descent, it's never measured through the, the woman. It's always measured through the father. The genealogies are all men, right? There are occasions when women are mentioned, but it's sort of in passing, and they have to be very significant people in the history of, of Israel. But in Israel, um, descent is determined by the father. Um, the, the descent, as far as even tribal descent... If your mother was of the tribe of, let's say, Issachar, and uh, your father was uh, of the tribe of uh, Judah, you would be of the tribe of Judah, not your mother's tribe. Okay? And so it's very significant. This is, this is a little bit of a disjunct compared to the rest of the Scriptures. And um, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Again, there's going to be, a, there's going to be conflict and the the result of this conflict is that the serpent will receive a lethal blow, but this seed to come, the seed of the woman, um, will only have his heel bruised. He shall bruise your head. So we can know there, there is no neuter in the uh, Hebrew language. There's only masculine and feminine. So this, this is obviously going to be a male who will come through. The other end now what i want to what i want to show you here is and i didn't come up with this myself i, I heard this from a, a messianic jew uh, and who is an actual very ex- expert in the old testament hebrew okay now what did eve know and when did she know it okay we're talking about these questions it's like what they used to say about hillary clinton you know <laughs> what did she know and when did she know it i i don't even think they ever got an answer um but look at chapter four, verse one. Okay, and this is this handout that I gave you. What I gave you was at the very top there, and that word at the very top—you see it up there—that's the—that's the actual word of the um, the title of Genesis. It's Barishit in the Hebrew. Uh, that's the first word in the Bible, Barishit Bara Elohim, and it's it's a compound word. When began to create God? Okay, when God. In the beginning, God created, okay? So that's, that's the word, the title word. So um, this is chapter 4, verse 1 in the Hebrew text up there, and Hebrew reads from right to left, okay? It's kind of strange. Looks like a bunch of chicken scratches there. And then what I gave you down below that is an interlinear of the same two verses, okay? The same, I think I maybe give you a little bit extra there, but it's this very same thing. And then down below that, another interlinear that has just a little bit more information on it. But what I want to point out is, look at at the English in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Okay, what I want to point out here is, when we're asking, what did Eve know? How did she understand Genesis 3.15? What could she know about that? The Messiah is going to come from the family of man. He's going to be from the human family. Very general, right? He's going to be born of a woman. Um, but, but from that also, and God is the one she understands who is the Redeemer, that she is going to understand that He is also going to be the God-man. Okay. So, when you see that translation up there, "I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Any Any of your translations have that help of the Lord in italics? Okay, it should be because it's not there. it's not in the text. This has given translators a real problem, okay? But if you look up at the very top up there at uh, well let's 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 look at the the first paraphrase here. So up on the upper right, you see "And the man." He knew Eve. Now you see where I've circled that little two-letter word there? That, that, that's pronounced et. Okay, And you notice it's not translated? That little two-letter word is a grammatical marker. It's an untranslated grammatical marker. It's commonly called the sign of the accusative because it signals the object of the verb. That's all it's doing. The first verse in the Bible says, Barashit bara Elohim et. HaShemayim, so created what the heavens va et it's a very common word but it simply signals that that with the word that follows and you can see it's got it's connected by like a little hyphen it's in construct it's just simply telling you this is the um the object of the verb okay it's a grammatical marker that's not translated and but then when you see in the translation i have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's added by the translators. If you look down at um, that first paraphrase, okay? So you see the first et there, he knew Eve. Tells you what or who he knew. Not translated, right? Wife of him, and she conceived, and she bore Cain. All right? And she, now you see it's not translated there. The same little grammatical marker. And she said, "I brought forth man with Yahweh." Now you see what they do there. They actually give you a translation of a preposition. Why did they do that? Why weren't they consistent? Because what she really says, and and to just um, to give you a uh, a very literal translation of it. Is that she says, I have gotten a man Yahweh. What does that tell you about her understanding of three fifteen the seed of a woman she thought she was a woman, and she thought she thought Cain was this promised seed if you if you understand it now to show you that um, what they did then now look at the very next phrase down lower right hand side starting in verse 2 there at the end of line 2 and she continued to bear what or who see grammatical marker brother of him his brother and notice abel they do there what they didn't do with cain how come it doesn't say bear the brother of him with abel why didn't they use a preposition there? See the inconsistency of how they translated that or how they understood that? They did it up there because that's problematic. And it's really been difficult historically for people to deal with that. But all you got to do is just <clears throat> translate it for what it says, right? I have gotten a man, Yahweh. He's a man, but it's Yahweh. He's the man, the God-man. And she thought this was the promised seed through the woman, she thought she was a woman. So once again, we have somebody that understands the Scripture, but not completely. And uh, so there's an example of, uh, of the progressive nature of Revelation. Messiah is going to be born into the family of, of man. He's going to be a human being, okay? So from Genesis 3.15, humanity, seed of the woman. And then Genesis 22.1-4, it gets narrowed down. So Genesis 22 is a, is a uh, repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. It's already been given in chapter 12, a couple other times. But in 22, we have mention of the seed again. So Genesis 22. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it was where he was going to sacrifice Isaac, okay? And uh, God is going to provide for himself the sacrifice. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, your seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring or seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Seed is is it's always singular in Hebrew, and it can have... It can be used, depending in the, on the context, in its absolute form of an individual as it is here. Whenever it's used of the descendants of um, Israel, the nation, it, it's always plural. So it can be collective or it can be absolute. Here it's used singularly. So the seed then will be from the human family, but this narrows it down now to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, So there it's progressively being revealed and narrowed down. Genesis 49.10, Jacob or Israel is passing off the scene and he's giving his blessings to his sons. And in Genesis 49, we arrive at 49.10 and Judah. Okay, 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the statement of Shiloh. Shiloh is not a proper name. Um, it, it, It has to do with his right to rule. So now we also have some more revelation here. This now gets, the seed line gets narrowed down from general humanity to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now the descendants of Jacob, now to this particular tribe. Okay, This is progressive revelation, even though it's getting narrower and narrower. The scepter, he will, he will be a king. This is some additional revelation from here. And it will not depart from Judah, um, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Okay? He has the right to rule because of who he is. So a narrowing down even more than what we saw before. Now, how about 2 Samuel 7? So we're moving out of the law into the writings now a little bit. There's more we could do. I mean, you could, you could track many of these all the way through. So 2 Samuel 7, this is a further rep- revelation of the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. Second Samuel seven, that entire chapter, of course, but um, let's just look down at um, verse sixteen. It won't take too much time, and and you remember the first part of this is to David's immediate son Solomon. Okay, but then it then it moves from the particular person Solomon to this future son that's going to come. Okay. It says in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all the words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Okay, So now we go from the tribe of Judah, because David is in the tribe of Judah, to a particular family. So you see how it's narrowing down from general humanity all the way down now to through a particular family. Okay, And then... Matthew chapter 1. We're jumping over quite a bit of stuff, but let's get right down to it. The New Testament opens up with Matthew writing his gospel account. And what how does he start? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And now he looks backwards because now he knows exactly who this is and he has the Old Testament he understands that this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. And to just connect the dots, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, Christ, David, Abraham. There's that seed line, that lineage. And then he starts with Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and he just goes down through that entire genealogy. Okay, And he gets down there to verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Now, in Jeremiah 22.30, there is a curse put on this man named Jeconiah. God rips off his name from the front of his name, and he now is called Coniah. God takes his name off your name, you're in trouble, okay? Okay. There's a problem. And he curses that entire line. And if you go back and read that, what it says is, no descendant of you will ever be qualified to sit on the throne of David. Now that's a problem. This is the seed line, right? Except go all the way back to Genesis 3, seed of the woman. Okay? So what happens here? These people are all descendants of somebody who has a curse put on them. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. This is verse 13. And Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad, And Eliad the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. Now watch this. The husband of Mary. It doesn't say the father of Jesus. It says the father of the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. The curse put on Coniah centuries before prevented any descendant of Coniah, and Joseph was a descendant. Joseph wasn't qualified to sit on the throne, even though he was a descendant of King David, and neither was any of his naturally born children. So it demanded the virgin conception of the true king, okay? Built into the whole thing way back when. And... You can even track it clear back, I think, to Genesis 3.15. Seed of the woman. And then a little grammatical issue here. Joseph, the husband, both of those are masculine in the Greek text. Of Mary, of course that's feminine. And then of whom, that's a little uh, indefinite pronoun there. Of whom. It is singular. And it's also feminine. That cannot be a reference to Joseph. Joseph. It cannot be a reference to both of them, like my parents, you know, in the plural. It is absolutely demanded that it only be a referent, the referent be Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So there we have New Testament confirmation and um, focusing down on this one who is born of Mary and who is the seed of the woman. Okay, Progressively revealed. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And of course, Matthew later on, another paragraph or so, he develops the virgin conception of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ as well. Absolutely ne- necessary for him to be the eternal King. Um, a human, mere human being, couldn't sit on the throne of David forever, and that's what the what Scripture says. You can see also in Luke chapter three, Mary's genealogy, Mary is also a descendant of King David, but not through Solomon, not that line. She's through Nathan. So she is not under the curse. Okay, And so therefore neither was Jesus, and he is qualified to sit on the throne of David. Okay? Um, Any thoughts that you might have on that? (laughs) The quiz on the Hebrew will be next time. Okay. So there's, that's, that's just one example of progressive revelation in Scripture. Now, we, there's a whole lot more that there is. What's really amazing is when you see and you track through all of these different uh, strands of uh, revelation, and they all converge, and I think there, again, is the telic Christ, they all converge on Jesus Christ. And the chances of any of that happening by, by mere chance, probability, is it, it's, it's totally impossible. Uh, these fulfilled prophecies are one of the most powerful polemics or arguments for the personal work of Christ in, in the Scripture. Okay? Uh, so, Dave. Yahweh. Yeah. She had no idea of knowing how long things were going to stretch out down through time. She couldn't see that. I mean, the prom- promise, she's right there when the promise is being made, when 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 God is telling Satan what's going to happen, why would she not assume that, well, I'm the woman, and this Child is, and there's also some significance. And um, the guy that I listened to, he's a he's a Hebrew, he's well versed. He, he his understanding is that even the name she gives to Abel is some indication that uh, she realizes this was a big mistake because uh, of what how Cain turned out. Yeah. So anybody else, any thoughts that you might have or questions? Yeah, yeah. that's there too. Yeah, I think it is true, uh, but I also think it. They're using the revelation of the Old Testament to witness those people and to, to show who Christ is. So they're both there. I don't I don't think you can separate the the revelation is there, but the illumination may or may not be, as we saw with those guys in chapter twenty four of Luke, you know. Their eyes were prevented, their eyes were opened. Um uh, so I think I think they're both there. It's a both and for that. Okay, let's start talking about application here. Application. We will be coming back to all of these topics because after tonight, we're going to spend the next seven weeks taking observation, interpretation, and application, all three of those, and going back through all those categories that are there in the front of your, uh, your notes and applying them, working the method as far as grammar. We did a little bit of that tonight. Literature and all those different categories. Okay, so these questions hopefully will, if they aren't answered now, we'll be able to answer them better in the future. So we're going to be coming back and applying all these. So from page 19, application, what do I do? Very important. So Howie Hendricks, Prof. Hendricks, the Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity. It was written to transform your life. The ultimate goal of Bible study then is not to do something to the Bible, but to allow the Bible to do something to you. So truth becomes tangent to your life. You see, we frequently come to the Bible to study it, to teach it, to preach it, to outline it, everything except to be changed by it. That is such a good word. And boy, it's a its a good word if you're involved in any kind of ministry where you're involved in teaching and preaching the Word of God. It's, just, it's so easy to get used to just putting it out there but not applying it to yourself. Um, remember the definitions I saw um, of expositional preaching, okay? Um let's see. Yeah, he's a was a preaching professor. Really good definition. It it first must must find its place in the heart of the teacher or preacher. That is so fundamentally true. Um, you can't you can do it. You can teach or preach. Guys do it all the time. But if it never has its place first in your heart, your own mind, and your own thinking, it's not really true Bible exposition. So that's, that is such a good word. And again, here, 2 Timothy 3.16, back to our foundational Scripture here. All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. has to have its place. It, it, it's, it is what it is because it's God's Word, but then it has to find its place in our lives. So this uh, next section is adapted from uh, a book that I almost used as our textbook, and that's a good textbook to get, called Living by the Book, Howard Hendricks and his son William D. Hendricks why we fail to make application of the Word. And the first thing we can fail to do, we substitute interpretation, that is, or observation, for application. This is Luke chapter 6. And then um, I have here verse 46 in your notes, but um, it really should include 46 through 49. Yeah. Um, Hears it, but doesn't act. Okay. And I'm not gonna we're this is I've selected a few of these so you guys can read the rest of these on your own. There's another problem that might take place. We substitute shallow obedience for deep life change. How about Ephesians four? Okay, pretty comprehensive, right? Life change. We can substitute rationalization or emotion for true or rational repentance. This is Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. Couldn't repent. Didn't, and then he couldn't. Okay? Um, and then D, we don't hear the application of God's word by our preachers and teachers. This, this can be a problem too in certain circles. It's always good to, to ask anytime you hear a, a message or a sermon or anything, you know, okay, what do I do? What do I not do? How, do I, how am I supposed to change my life? and um it's very important to do that and second why we sh- why we should make application of the word well main reason is we have a new relationship to god this is romans twelve one and 2 okay be transformed metamorphos metamorpho oh, metamorphosis we get the word from that okay and well i'm always um struck by how often the mind the mind the mind In that passage is just think 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 okay The mind is so critical, and that's what we use to apply to Scripture, to learn the Word of God. And another reason, we have a new relationship to God's law. Now, I think I would run out of coffee this morning that I wrote this because I really mangled this reference here. This should be Romans 6, 1 through 7, and chapter 7, 1 through 4. Of course, when you read that, Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul is arguing there, for the spiritual life and so on but i think we'll get the point of our relation new relationship to the law from chapter 6 1 through 7 and then 7 1 through 4. okay we're dead to the law the law doesn't have jurisdiction over if you're dead right can't arrest a dead guy all right so a new relationship to god's law and then c we have a new relationship to other christians the one and others of the new testament um, this is the outworking of the command of the lord in the upper room to love one another, and the one another's are how you do that. And there's quite a few of them in Scripture. depends on whose list you look at. Um, I've, got, I've taught through those several times, and it's a, it's a very practical and rewarding study, I think, because it's, it shows you how you do and how it's to be done in the church, this command to love one another. It's also a very powerful uh, evangelistic tool. Jesus said, all men, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You might think it should say love for them. No, it doesn't. The the internal working of the church is critical to the testimony of the church. It's a powerful evangelistic tool. Well, then three, Roman numeral three, why we should ask questions of the word. Now, I'm going to move through these, and you guys can look at these references on your own. We discover examples to follow. Okay, that's pretty basic, right? Like Joseph in Egypt. How did Joseph... Act in Egypt, okay? He is, uh, you know, there. He was sold into slavery there by his brothers, and he's there, and you know, and he had that issue with Potiphar's wife, right? I mean, she's just flat throwing herself at him, those kinds of things, or Daniel in Babylon, or even the Apostle Paul in prison. Uh, you can learn a lot by how these these people acted in the circumstances that they found themselves in, and B. We are convicted of sins to avoid or abandon. Again, Exodus 20, the law, Galatians 5, and so on. We observe commands to obey. So, things to avoid, things to not do, but also commands to obey, the positive things we are supposed to do. And we also um, encounter the promises of God. Very, very important, you know. Take advantage of the promises that you see in Scripture. They're for you, you know. It's like what Jesus said uh, uh, take eat it 's for you, I think sometimes we forget that you know he died for us, and we should understand all that that means and all of the blessings that come with with those who have obeyed Christ uh, through faith in him, and then uh, that 's the joy of obedience and then f we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior jesus christ 2 peter three eighteen so All of these things have to do with application. We'll be talking about this more because uh, what you'll what you'll find is that the observation that you make turns into you know moves toward um, interpretation. There's a single meaning for what that verse or passage says or means, but then there can always be multiple applications. This is where sometimes people get mixed up with application versus meaning. You know. Um, there can be many applications for a particular principle from scripture okay we 'll be talking about that in the future, so okay, anything else? any questions you might have about that or comments? I think you can start with with those developmental questions: who, what, when, where, how, all that kind of thing. You might also go to Deuteronomy chapter four, and there 's two places in Deuteronomy chapter four where it talks about the nation of Israel because Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, where they are unique among all the nations, because God gave them the law. You can also go to uh, Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. It clearly says that God gave His law to Israel and Judah, not to the nations. If you're a Gentile, God didn't give you His law. Scripture, not me. So that's one argument, but then you move into the New Testament, I mean, Paul says, we've died in Christ, therefore we're dead to the law. The law has no jurisdiction. That's that whole Romans 7 argument there. We're not under the law. He even says, you are not under law, you're under grace. Okay? Um, so that's, that's how I would approach it. And the immediate response is going to be, oh, you think you can just uh, rob people and commit adultery and all that? and violate the law? No, because I'm not under that law. I'm under the law of Christ. There's, clear, there's a clear distinction of those in Scripture, made in Scripture. So I would just present those things to someone and let, let the Scripture do its work or not. Exactly. And you can, go through, you can go through the development of that. Paul does that. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ, he says. And he has that imagery of the Greek the Greek uh, pedagogue, you know, the, the, the tutor who is there to help you along for a certain period of time. And then they, they they go away when you've reached that maturity. Um, that's, that's one of the significant things about it. But one of the dangers that's happened historically by people, and it comes right out of the Catholic Church, Catholic dogma, Catholic doctrine is they are the new Israel. Okay. And the reformers didn't reform that. They just didn't. They, it's, right straight through, all the way down to us here and now. This is why you can go find Reformed or even Presbyterian churches. They call themselves the New Israel. Well, they didn't get that from Scripture. They got that from Catholicism. And this is why many times you will notice uh, very prominently displayed in front of, let's say, Presbyterian churches is what? The Decalogue or an image of it, okay? Why? They consider themselves the New Israel. God gave a lot of Israel, therefore they're under the law.